Well, whatever you feel about traveling, I know different people have different thoughts and opinions about it, but whatever you feel about traveling, one thing seems to be true, it's rarely uneventful. Last February, a blizzard in Boston kept several of us who were 1,600 miles away in 80-degree temperatures grounded in the Dominican Republic for three extra days. <laughs> well, we weren't at the beach. On our return trip, we encountered a screaming madman in the airport at Santo Domingo, um, had an unplanned overnight in Orlando, Florida, and thankfully, eventually, finally, were able to book a direct flight into Bangor. That's not how we drew it up. That's not how it was supposed to go. But that's traveling. And I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences and probably a lot worse. This morning in our study in Exodus, we are joining Moses in his travels back to Egypt. We're covering the first and the last 13 verses of Exodus 4 in a text that has been described as anticlimactic, especially when compared to the revelation of God to Moses in the burning bush. So it is true, these verses that we're going to be looking at today are not the most captivating that we will find in the book of Exodus. They make up what seem to be like three snippets or three uh, distinct units of thought. And yet if there is a unifying theme to be found in these verses, it is that things proceed according to the plan of God. Things proceed according to the plan of God. So if we think of this life, the life that we have been given as a journey, we can expect it, like every journey, to take some unexpected, interesting, unpredictable, sometimes unwelcome and unwanted twists and turns. Some of the things that happen to us will make no sense to us. But nothing that happens to us will make no sense to God because things proceed according to his plan. You see, the Lord sees what is ahead of us. He has a perfect plan for his people. And he has the power to pull it off. Throughout the book of Exodus, this is true in the example of Moses' life, and it is true for us as well. Things proceed according to the plan of God. God is in control. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 4. Keep them open. We're going to make our way somewhat systematically through these last verses. I'm going to begin reading in the 18th verse. I'm going to go all the way down to the 23rd verse. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, 
See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So a little context here, right? Moses has been on the mountain talking with God. God has commissioned Moses to go to Egypt and rescue the Israelites from their slavery. Moses has objected and listed all the reasons why he can't do what God wants him to do, but then God answers all his questions and all of his objections, and Moses concedes. That's where we pick up in verse 18. Moses has left Mount Horeb where he's tending Jethro's sheep, and now he's returning to his father-in-law to seek his father-in-law's permission to go back to Egypt. That part of the story, unlike uh, what is about to follow, is fairly straightforward. Moses seeks the permission of his father-in-law to go back to Egypt. Now he's 80 years old. We might think, well, at 80 years old, you probably don't have to seek the permission of anybody to do much of anything. But remember, this is a patriarchal culture. And more than anything, this tells us something about Moses and his relationship with Jethro. Moses is respectful. He does the right thing. He honors his father-in-law. He implores him, please let me go back to my people to see if they are still alive. Now, a careful reader knows that that's not the whole story. That's not the reason that God told Moses to go back to Egypt. It's not necessarily untrue. Things change a lot in 40 years, in a span of 40 years, right? There's a good bet that some of the people, the family and the friends, that Moses had left are no longer on the earth. They have passed away. It also might be a commentary on what Moses thinks is happening to his brothers and sisters, that there's a chance that they have been worked so hard by the slave masters there that some of them won't be even alive. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Well, whatever his reason for couching it that way, I guess there might be one more to think about. Maybe if he told his father-in-law exactly what he was going to do and exactly what God had told him to do, Jethro wouldn't have been so accommodating. Sometimes the Lord gives you something to do that seems so radical, so far-fetched, you're afraid to even tell anybody that he's told you, right? Maybe some of you have had that experience, and you know what that's like. I can't tell my friends that. They're going to think I'm a, a, a wacko. I can't tell my parents that. They're going to disown me and think I've lost my mind. That could have been factoring in here as well. But it doesn't really matter what Moses was thinking, because ultimately Jethro said, go ahead, go in peace. And so Moses saddles up the family, puts his wife and his sons on the donkey, and away they go. Now, before he left, God said, make sure to take that staff. Remember that staff. Only now here in verse 20, we see that this stick that he's been carrying around isn't just a stick anymore. It is now the staff of God. It is now the symbol and the sign of God's power and God's presence. It's going to figure dramatically into the deliverance of the Israelites. With this staff, Moses is going to perform many miracles as he leads God's people to freedom. 
All that's straightforward. Now we come to one of those unanticipated turns. Moses gets some information from God that was probably hard for him to understand in the moment and remains hard for us to understand to this day. God said to him, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. That's not the hard part. That's where we learn that, okay, this, these signs that Moses can do are not just so that the people of Israel will believe and come to faith, but they're also for Pharaoh. They're also so that Pharaoh can get a little taste of God's power. That makes sense because Pharaoh, as we'll see in chapter 5, doesn't have any idea about who God is, does not understand God at all. But it's what comes next that mystifies us. God says, go do these things in front of Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I remember when I first read these words in the Bible. I was young person. I probably was 11 years old, 12 years old. I don't know. I had, I had one of those um, message type of Bibles, The Way. Maybe some of you remember that. It was easier to read. I had determined that I was going to read through the Bible. I got as far as Leviticus before I quit, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. Um, but I did get into Exodus. So I got Genesis. I'm in Exodus. I'm reading this, and it says that God says, I will harden his heart. And I, I just remember thinking, well, that's not fair. Well, yeah, I don't think you can do that, God. That is not fair. That was long before I knew really much about God. I certainly didn't know a lot about the Bible and the meta-narrative of the Bible. I didn't know anything about Pharaoh. And I didn't know about the Exodus story, but it just struck me as unfair that God would do that to Pharaoh. What I have since learned, of course, is that God's not capable of doing anything that's unfair. He can't do anything unfair. He can't do anything unfair. He can't do anything wrong. It's against his character. He certainly does things that we, fully, we don't fully understand, right? I mean, that's fairly common. We don't know why things happen the way that they do. But when that happens, what's wrong is, is not what God is doing. It's our understanding of it, usually or our interpretation of it. You see, we never, ever have God's vantage point. We can't see things from that vantage point. And as humans, we really are limited, and we can't understand always what God is up to. I have told you many times, shared with you Tim Keller's conclusion about how to understand the hard things that come to us and the tough stuff that we deal with. He says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. There are times in our lives when God has given us things we do not want and we think they're wrong or bad or a mistake. And yet, Keller's right. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. That statement is planted firmly in the adamant belief in the goodness of God. That God is good. That he is love. That he is just that he has a perfect plan even if it presents to us as as not good even even if it's impossible for us to wrap our minds around it God is good why does God tell Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart there are a few reasons we can clean this up a little bit but we we'll still be I'll tell you this we'll still be left with a mystery when it's all said and done we can clean it up a little bit. 
Why does God tell Moses he's going to break, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? He, he says this, I think, right off the bat because he wants Moses to know what to expect. Even if Moses doesn't understand exactly how this is going to play out, we have come to see already in just a few chapters that Moses is the kind of guy who likes to know what's going to happen next. Can any of you relate to that? You want to know what's going to happen next. How's this going to play out? How's that going to play out? When, where, who, what, when, why? All of that. This is Moses. Remember, not long ago, he's raised five objections to God's call on his life. All of them have to do with things he doesn't understand or trouble that he's borrowing as he looks into the future. And I think God is so good to people like Moses and to people like us. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. All the while that we are being encouraged to live, not by sight, but by faith, not by what we see, by, by what we believe, all the while that this is the direction we're all moving in, God knows that we fail at that from time to time, and he's so good to accommodate us in our frailties and in our weaknesses. I mean, he gets out ahead of Moses here, and he says, hey, all the men that are seeking your life in Egypt, the guys that you ran away from, after you committed that murder, they're all dead. They're all gone. Why does he say that? That Moses isn't asking about it because he knows Moses. And he knows that Moses needs this kind of information. So he gets out ahead of him and hands it to him. I know, Moses, if I don't answer this question, you're going to ask it. And you're going to say, but what if? So let me give it to you right now. I think that's part of what's going on here when he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I can see Moses getting there, sharing the words of God and having Pharaoh say, I'm not going to do it. And Moses going, oh, great. I knew it. No, this is what's going to happen. In a way, I think of Jesus trying to tell his disciples, hey, the son of man is going to be handed over and he's going to be killed. Three days later, he's going to rise again. He keeps saying that to them and they keep yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. We don't always get it the first time, but God is still good to share it with us, and I think that's what he's doing here with Moses. Secondly, what's happening here by God declaring his intention to harden Pharaoh's heart is that he's showing everyone. Now, we know this stuff because we've read the Bible, we understand it, and uh, for the most part, we get the idea that God is all-powerful, but the folks back then didn't know that, and they needed to know that, that God is more powerful than Pharaoh. Moses would wonder that. You're asking me to go up against the superpower. You're asking me to go confront this great world leader. Are you stronger than him? Because if you're not, I'm going to have it handed to me. This isn't going to work. The Israelites might have been asking the same thing. If we're going to put our lives on the line to follow you and, and to try to get out of this place, is this God strong enough to deliver us? Can he protect us? So I think here there's just an assertion of a plain truth that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart because God is more powerful than Pharaoh. By the way, this might not need saying today, but, but it, I think it's worth saying God is stronger than any power in your life today. And there are a lot of powers that come to bear on us, but God is stronger than all of them, okay? Maybe there's somebody in authority over you and they're frustrating you at work. 
God is sovereign over that. Maybe there's a part of your personality that, is, that leads you in the, in the wrong ways. God is stronger than that. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe you're held in the sway of an addiction. And you cannot rescue yourself. God is stronger than that. God is stronger than anything and anyone in this world. And that was a lesson that Moses had to learn and the Israelites had to learn. And isn't that a lesson that you and I need to learn or at least be reminded of from time to time? Especially when things loom large. Larger than life. No, God is God. And he's stronger than these things. Hardening Pharaoh's heart, though, is not just a my God is bigger than your God kind of ploy here. God's claim that he will harden Pharaoh's heart is witness to this truth that God is sovereign. Now, you've probably heard that word a lot thrown out. I've even used it today. What does it mean that when we say that God is sovereign? It means he rules the universe. It means he does what he wants to do, whatever. He wants to do. And it means what he does is always right. John Piper puts it this way. He says, whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do a thing that he despises. He's never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something he hates to do. He does whatever he pleases. Most of us who believe in, in God or even in a God agree that he has to be sovereign. What kind of a God would he be if he wasn't in control of everything? Where we disagree, where we have some arguments perhaps, is, is in how or the lengths to which God exercises his sovereignty. This is where so someone may ask, do you believe in predestination or do you believe in free will? And the answer is yes. The Bible teaches these things. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Six times in Exodus, Pharaoh's hard heart is attributed to God. Six times in Exodus, Pharaoh's hard heart is attributed to himself. And then another seven or eight times, Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned in there, and it's not attributed to anybody, it's just an observation that he has a hard heart. Which leads commentator Philip Ryken to write this. He said, taken together, what these statements show is that Pharaoh's heart was doubly hard. He hardened his own heart. Nevertheless, God hardened his heart for him. Both of these statements are true, and there is no contradiction between them. Pharaoh's will was also God's will. God not only knew Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, but he actually ordained it. This is the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God, but even the choice we make is governed by God's sovereign and eternal will. It would be so much cleaner and easier for us than the way that we think if it was one way or another. Is it God doing this or is it Pharaoh doing this? Is it predestination or is it free will? The answer is yes. Consider this. Now, this is not going to explain the paradox that I'm talking about any better, but it is an apt demonstration of it. Consider the crucifixion of Jesus, of God's own son, 
It was perpetrated by wicked men who were responsible for it. And yet in all their evil scheming, they were only fulfilling the plan and the will of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sins of the world. In all their evil, wicked scheming, they were still only fulfilling the, the plan of God. We find in Acts chapter 4 and verses 26 and 28 this awesome prayer that is offered by the disciples, offered to God after uh, Peter and John have just gotten out of jail, right? This is early church time. The people praise God saying, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was Herod guilty? Yes, he was. Was Pontius Pilate guilty? Yes. The Roman soldiers who crucified him? Yes. The Israelites who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Yes, they were guilty, all. And yet what they did was predetermined predestined by God to take place. You know what? Beyond that, Isaiah predicted this long before in Isaiah chapter 53. The prophecy of the suffering servant, whom Scripture reveals now to be Jesus, says this, and yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was his will to crush him. That's the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. Things proceed according to the plan of God. Now we move on in the text. We see next, the Lord gives Moses the words to speak to Pharaoh. Remember, Moses was worried that he wouldn't know what to say, and God said, I'll give you the words, and he gives him these words. Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the first time, it's not the last time, that Israel is described in Scripture as God's son. Here he is described as a firstborn son, which is significant. Because a little while later in the Word, Exodus 13, verse 2, we read, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The firstborn belongs to the Lord. But here, the firstborn son, Israel, is the property of Pharaoh. The firstborn is to be consecrated to the Lord. The firstborn is, is to serve the Lord. But here, the firstborn Israel exists only to serve Pharaoh, making bricks and building storehouses for the Egyptian kingdom. So God says, let my son go that he may serve me. Not just let me go, not just let him go. We talked about this, right? He's not creating a group of free-range Israelites. What we're after is shifting masters. We're coming out from under the master of Pharaoh to come under God. Let my son go that he may serve me. And so that's what Exodus is about. Exodus is about being saved for God's glory. Exodus is about being saved to serve God. God saves us so that we can serve him. Firstborn belongs to God. Let my son go, that he may serve me. And then he follows that up with a dire warning. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. 
And what we have there in those words is a foreshadowing of the tenth plague, right? The killing of the firstborn. Because the Lord knows what lies ahead. And he has a perfect plan for his people. He has the power to pull it off. He's in control. Will God really kill Pharaoh's firstborn? Will God really kill the heir to Pharaoh's throne? Yes. Side of God we like to spend a lot of time dwelling on, is it? Think more about a God of mercy and a God of grace. We do that sometimes at the exclusion of the idea that he's also a God of justice, so a holy God, and that he's an exacting God, and that he is not a God to be trifled with in any way. There are consequences for disobeying God. The Bible tells us they are. The wages of sin is death. And in preparation for this huge task, it's out in front of him now, Moses, who's supposed to deliver the Israelites from slavery, lead them to the promised land, is about to learn just how holy and just how fierce and just how exacting the God of the Hebrews really is. The next verses before us in chapter 4 are verses 24 and 26. If we were not making our way through a book of the Bible somewhat systematically, and if I were not attempting to preach a book of a Bible expositionally, you would never hear this passage of Scripture coming out of this pulpit. This is the kind of passage that, that, that pastors look at and take a wide berth around. This is a Scripture you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole with somebody else's 10-foot pole this is the kind of stuff that you read in your daily devotional and you say, okay. And then you move on because you're not going to put the time it takes. These three verses that we're going to look at now because we have to, they are in God's word for a reason, but they are regarded as some of the most enigmatic verses in the Bible. Jim Chester uh, wrote a commentary called Exodus for You. And in that commentary, he says this, there now follows a strange episode. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, Tim. There now follows a strange episode which raises questions which we can't readily answer 3,000 years on. There is much we do not know about what's happening in verses 24 to 26. Okay, that's what the commentator says. When you go to a commentary, you're looking to see what really smart people have to say about the Bible. And when the really smart guy can only say, well, there's a lot we don't know. We haven't been able to figure this out in 3,000 years. The odds of me being able to clear it up for you, really slim. But we're going to read it anyway. <laughs> Exodus 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Well, that's not a lot of context for this story. As we're reading the narrative, it feels kind of like it just drops in there out of the blue, but we're sure that that's not what's happening. 
We could say that there seems to be a lot of missing information. Certainly, there's a lot of questions that we would have about it that we would like to see answered. But there can't be missing information. This is the Word of God, and it's perfect. And the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake. There is much that we do not know, but there are a few things that we do know. And so whenever that's the case, you should stick with what you do know. What we do know is that God met him. Now, your translation might say God met Moses, but here's the rub from the very beginning. Actually, the literal translation in the Hebrew says God met him, leading some to speculate that this isn't even about Moses, that there's another him. Maybe it's about Moses' son. Maybe it's about Pharaoh's firstborn. But I actually think that there's enough context in here that brings it back around for us to be able to say fairly safely that even though it doesn't say God met Moses, the context implies that it was Moses. Moses is the him, as far as I'm concerned. And we know that the Lord was about to kill him. The Lord was about to kill Moses. He was seeking to put him to death. Now, the passage doesn't tell us specifically why, but it does tell us what had to happen for Moses to get out of his jam. And that leads us to some reasonable speculation as to what's going on. The wrath of God against Moses was averted when Zipporah circumcised their son. He should have been circumcised already, of course, in the Jewish tradition. And apparently he wasn't. What that means is that Moses appeared to be raising his son as a Midianite. Or maybe even as an Egyptian, but certainly not as a Jew. Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. And it was a right that was commanded in Genesis chapter 17 in a conversation between God and Abraham. God says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So when God revealed himself to Moses, remember that on the mountain, and Moses said, who are you? Who do I say that you are? We know that he said, I am who I am. But he also said something else, remember? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In other words, he is the God of the Hebrews. And if Moses is going to lead the Hebrews, he must live as a Hebrew. And he certainly has to lead as a Hebrew, by example. And he has disobeyed God by not circumcising his own son. Moses' own firstborn son is not consecrated to the Lord. And Moses is guilty, and God is seeking to kill him. And once again, in the Exodus narrative, we find a quick-thinking woman coming to the rescue. Zipporah somehow knew what to do to save Moses. And so she circumcised her son. But then the story gets even weirder. Touches Moses' feet with the foreskin of her son and declares Moses to be a bridegroom of blood. What is going on? Well, it's hard to know, but what we do know is this. Listen, Moses is somehow delivered from death by the applied blood of another. It's a bit cryptic, but it appears to be a foreshadowing of the Passover, which is to come, which is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus, which is to come, where the blood of a substitute saves people from death. 
In their book, Echoes of Exodus, authors Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson write, Zipporah circumcises their son and puts the blood on display, covering Moses with it so that the Lord will not kill him. His son's foreskin becomes the Passover lamb, spread over the beams of his house at nighttime, and Moses is saved. Which brings new meaning to the phrase, saved by the blood. Yet it seems to be consistent, because it's what caused God to leave Moses alone. And Moses is shown again, as he was on the mountain, remember where God called him, and then God said, don't come any nearer. Shoes off. You're on holy ground. Moses is shown again that God is holy and that God is an exacting God. Again, from Echoes of Exodus, Roberts and Wilson write, you wonder whether one of the reasons Moses stressed obeying every detail of God's instructions on the first Passover, you're going to see this as we get into Exodus 12, you're going to see it even more as we get into the instructions for the tabernacle. Some of you have read ahead, and you're like, gracious sakes alive, how many times do we have to talk about the curtains and the rings and the rods? And that? You wonder, they say, why Moses stressed over obeying every detail about this was that perhaps in this incident he had seen something of what happens when you don't. We might say the, the moral of this story within the story is if God tells you to do something, do it. God tells you to do something, do not delay. Or on a larger scale, we can see this incident as displaying the seriousness of living in covenant with God, of not being so casual about our relationship with God. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, the sign of true sonship. Only the children are the ones who are going to be saved. Only the children are the ones who are going to experience that eternal blessing of God. Today, one comes into covenant relationship with God by believing in Jesus, and the sign of the covenant is what? you know? Baptism. No longer circumcision. Paul writes about it in Colossians in chapter 2. The sign of belonging and living in covenant with God now is baptism. Paul said in him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through him, with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See how important baptism now to baptism is to declare one's covenantal relationship with God. It says, I'm with God. A covenant, a covenant is serious business. Marriage is a covenant. When we get into a marriage covenant, we're making an enduring commitment to another individual, for better or for worse. That's why we say the vows. A covenant. In the Old Testament, you know, they, to cut a covenant was the phrase. Literally, they would cut an animal in half and put it to the side. And the people who were joining in covenant would walk between those pieces and would say to one another, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I violate this covenant. Covenant. Serious, serious business. And baptism is the way that we demonstrate our covenant commitment and relationship to God. So the final portion of today's text, 
very quickly now, verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of people. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now this is truly a joyful conclusion to chapter 4. And if you wanted to subtitle it, you could subtitle it, See, I told you so. Because what God had told Moses was going to happen was happening. He sent Aaron out to meet him. And the Bible says that Aaron greeted him, kissed him. Uh, which we can see both as a sign of affection, but also as a sign of submission. Aaron was sent by God to accompany Moses on the mission. And so he submits to Moses just as God said he would. Moses shares everything with Aaron. Aaron then goes back with Moses and calls the elders of, of Israel. They share everything uh, that God has revealed to them. And, and the amazing thing happens when they share the word of God. The people believe. Moses was worried that they wouldn't. Remember, what if they don't believe? He's all worried about that. And God said, don't worry, they're going to believe. Why is that? Because things proceed according to the plan of God. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. He knows what's out there. He knows what's going to happen. No surprises with God. But not only did they believe after they heard the word, they worshiped. Didn't just take it in, okay, yeah, that sounds good. They worship. They fell before him in worship. And why did they do that? Because, it's a simple answer, because they were told. They worship God because they were told about God. You know how many people who don't know God, even today, who do not understand there is a God? who loves and who cares and who knows and who has the power to save? Oh, no, I'm so worried. Well, what if they don't believe me? Listen, Moses, they'll believe you if you tell them. And they won't even know. Don't. They believed when they heard that the Lord had visited them, that he had seen their affliction. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what anyone wants is to be known, to be understood? To hear that word that God sees and God knows, and God cares, God saves. Isn't that, isn't that what we need, what we want, what anybody wants? They bowed their heads and they worshiped him. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest this morning that we have a message to bear to the world that is similar to that of Moses, a message of a God who has visited of, of a God who has come down. The Word became flesh, John 1, 1, and, and dwelt among us. We have a message about a God who sees and a God who knows and a God who understands. Jesus came to this earth to live uh, a perfect life. He endured everything. He understands what we go through. He was tempted, the scripture says, in every way, yet without sin. And he cares and he saves. 
Isn't that the message of the gospel? That is the message of the gospel. That is the message that we have been entrusted with. Real truth that can liberate the slaves. Real truth that sets the captives free. When I read this passage, I came to this final verse in my preparation, 30, 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I scratched a note in the margin of my Bible. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Because this is what happens when people hear about God. They believe. And then they worship. People need to know the truth about God's amazing mercy, the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, who carried their sins to the cross so that they can be free and forgiven and know eternal life. People need to know the truth about a God who understands their situation intimately like nobody else on earth ever could, who cares for them deeply and who loves them extravagantly with a never-ending and steadfast. In the words of pastor and author Paul Tripp, we have been called, it's you and me, brothers, sisters, we have been called to shine the light of the glory of God into hearts that have been made dark by looking for life in all the wrong places. We've been called to offer the filling glories of grace to those who are empty and malnourished. We've been called to represent a glorious king who alone is able to rescue, heal, redeem, transform, forgive, deliver, and satisfy. When the people heard about God, they worshiped. Let's stand and sing together our closing hymn.